welcome to the In the Booth podcast. I'm your host, Alan Etzler. I'm joined today by Mallory Panusco. Mallory, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. Um, and we are have a special guest today also, a county council candidate for at the at-large seat, one of the two at-large seats, uh, Kai Hagen. Kai, how are you doing today? Thank you for joining us. Fine. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. So we'll jump right in. Uh, you know, we're a little bit more than a month out of the election. How is the campaigning going and where, you know, what are three issues that you can kind of tell voters that are, uh, you're passionate about in this in this election? I, I think the campaign's going fine. Uh, you know, I had a the flu for a week and knocked me out, and so that was uh, bad timing. But other than that, we've been working hard for what seems like, you know, month after month after month. Uh, obviously, you know, as you get closer to election day or to early voting, which starts even sooner. In fact, I've gotten Facebook messages and emails from people telling me they've received their absentee ballots now. So it's on. Uh, but, uh, you know, we don't do polling at the local level. So you you try to make the right choices, get out, uh, you know, the information and meet people as well as you can. Try to use your resources, your time, your volunteers, uh, the fundraising that you do as smartly as you can. Uh, and hope for the best, but uh, you just sort of put together little bits and pieces of information about how you think it's going, but, you know, we don't really know. Mm. Feels good. <laughs> <laughs> and what, what are some of those issues that you've been campaigning on that you're, you're passionate about uh, that you feel like you can change uh, if you get on, on the council? Well, I, I mean, there's no shortage of important issues that the county has to deal with. Uh, I do take a different approach than some people, at least in terms of how I talk and think about it, and that I see a lot of these things as not separate, distinct issues that are kind of off on their own to be dealt with separately, but they're really connected to each other in terms of, you know, how we plan and shape our community, the availability of resources, how one uh, issue is connected to another one solution can either help with other things or make create another problem that's worse and so i generally try to take a holistic and systemic approach to problem solving in in that regard um, i think that it is the two most important responsibilities of local government are education and public safety i think uh, no matter what you have to maintain those as a very high priority uh, they're long-term very significant investments combined they probably make up 70 75 percent of the county budget uh, so doing those things well uh, in the immediate time frame but also in terms of planning uh, hiring and training the f development of adequate facilities new schools uh, long-term you know salary planning and everything else is is uh, a top priority in knocking on doors and talking to people and going around the county and just being involved in the county for you know 23 years very actively uh, you know one of the big issues that always uh, is at the forefront of elections, is critical in the county, is land use and planning and development. Uh, that's true in any county that is experiencing growth and growth pressures. And uh, so, you know, sometimes there's a discussion happening about whether or not, you know, we should no growth or more growth, as growth is good, growth is bad. And that really defeats the point of good government, I think, because growth is going to happen here. And so the more important issue is not whether or not we're going to grow, but if we're doing it right. And a lot of the ways in which we've approached that in the past have not been right. And those choices affect the shape of our community, uh, our attractiveness to businesses and uh, to people who want to live here, uh, affordable housing, uh, public transit, uh, the environment. Uh, you could add 
uh, a lot of people to this county and uh, improve some of those things and protect the environment well, or you could add fewer doing it the wrong way and have a disastrous impact on the cost of public services, uh, falling behind on infrastructure, traffic, school overcrowding, uh, sprawl, and effect on the environment, open space. So I think that's a broad panoply of issues and effects and connections to other concerns in our community that are important. Uh, and so it, people talk about it in different ways. But when you talk to people, issues related to growth and development come up all the time. Um, so speaking of development and schools, and you mentioned that, um, a timely issue right now. Tonight, the county council is going to be voting. Always timely. Yeah, well, yes, everything's timely. <laughs> um, is going to be voting on um, raising the school construction fees for um, d developers that haven't like paid all of their fees yet. And um, I just wanted to kind of get your thoughts on, I mean, by the time this runs, they'll have voted. But I guess, like, what are your thoughts on that? Like, would you vote for that? I mean, would you be in favor of raising those school construction fees? I would be, but I look at the problem more broadly than that. Mm -hmm. I mean, these fees are related. It's a fee in lieu. It's a fee that the developers themselves proposed during the previous administration as a way to get out of having to either mitigate a problem directly or wait until it didn't exist. For, for people who are listening, the Adequate Public Facilities Ordinance is a backstop to bad planning. It's a way of saying that if we have approved certain growth in areas and development in areas where schools are not adequate, uh, overcrowded, or roads are inadequate, um, we're going to hold up. <laughs> You're going to wait until that problem is solved, or you can contribute directly to expand a school or build a school or improve a road, or as the developers asked for and received from the previous board, uh, you can pay this fee, this fee in lieu. And that was set to try to address the cost of, filling, of meeting those needs. And uh, since the bill was passed at their request, the uh, fee has not gone up, but other things have, including the mm -hmm. cost of school construction and other related things. And so the question now is whether or not with this particular solution, which I don't necessarily think is the best as part of an overall package of how we're planning and thinking about land use, um, should that fee reflect those higher costs? And in that narrow discussion, I think it should. But I also think we need to have a different, broader discussion about how to mm -hmm. approach the issue better. So, so what are some ideas you you would look at if you became if you got on the council? Because this this fee will really only matter until these I think twelve developers pay off the the remaining fees that they have to, and then it's back to just the two options: you either wait, you either wait, or you build it yourself. Is there is there a third option you could propose or a way to, a way to bring those fees in things well, like that? Well, and this is a good example of where it helps to be thinking comprehensively or holistically, <laughs> systemically as it will in terms of land use and planning. Uh, those are approved developments that are causing these particular problems running into the question of overcrowded schools or inadequate roads and having one or two or three at the moment options for kind of what they do if that's the case. That's bad planning. In other words, the APFO is a backstop. It's good to have a backstop, but it's a backstop to inadequate in planning. And if we are planning properly, we're not approving developments uh, without uh, where schools will be overcrowded or where the roads are inadequate. We'll be looking at it, but, but, but even more broadly than that, you have to look at overall land use and planning in terms of what you're trying to accomplish as a community. So we need to do a better job of adhering to the broad range of smart growth principles. I know when you say smart growth, some people think you're just talking about density or one or two other things, but it's really a, 
a, a comprehensive list of 12 different uh, principles and approach to growth that relate to things like mixed use, as well as the decision-making process and public input and uh, infrastructure and, and things. But when you do that, you're starting to address other questions at the same time, questions like affordable housing, uh, you know, whether or not this is going to be the kind of community where the people who work here you know, from, and who live here, from seniors who've retired and don't need their large home anymore to young individuals, singles, or families that are moving into a community, don't have a substantial income yet, you know, can find decent uh, places to live in communities with transit or that are walkable or, uh, you know, we don't do a very good job. We have not done a very good job uh, over the last few decades of providing the appropriate mix of housing and in a model uh, that supports vibrant uh, communities and those other principles. Um, shifting focus just a little bit, um, the county executive and the sheriff recently announced a desire to place a detox center inside the county's work release center. Um, would you support that plan to put a detox center in that area? Well, I think you know we're dealing with a very serious issue when it comes to opioids, and uh, we have seen the death rate is not decreasing. There was just an article, I think, in your paper, mm -hmm. what, today or yesterday, that today. the 2018 numbers are likely to be higher than the 2017 numbers. So it's not a problem that's going away. I do think that uh, the county has done many things in recent times um, uh, to try to address that issue uh, around treatment and resources. Um, and this would be one uh, of the options and what has to be a, a broad range of strategies uh, uh, that we take to uh, deal with the problem. I think at the core, uh, the very important point is that we have to treat this as a public health issue. That doesn't mean there aren't law enforcement elements that are involved, mm -hmm. and clearly there are things related to national and state policy that we can't deal with directly uh, around prescription drugs and other things that uh, play into this. Um, but Frederick County uh, has been taking some, I think, very strong and positive steps towards trying to provide the resources. But if we think of it as a public health crisis, we're going to do our very best to get ahead of the problem, to identify the causes, uh, to deal with education, to have the right kind of intervention, uh, but also making you know treatment immediately available to the people who need it. It's a whole combination mm -hmm. of things, and that's one. It wouldn't be mm -hmm. enough by itself. But as part of the broader picture, I think it's a it's another good piece to put in place. Mm -hmm. One of the responsibilities of the county council is to, is to set the the tax rate. So, do you support a constant yield or a constant rate tax rate? And how have you felt about the choices that the county executive has made in terms of setting the tax rate, and the county council has made in the past four years, and then the spending that goes with that? Well, it's not just the past four years. I mean, I. I think there's only been a couple of years in the last 20 or something like that where we've done the constant yield instead of the constant rate. And one of them was in the final year of the Blaine Young Board of County Commissioners when the difference between the constant yield and the constant rate was almost nothing. And it was mostly a political action after three years of them being at the constant uh, uh, rate. The, the county is going to grow. And we go, because we're adding new businesses, new people, we see valuation going up, county revenues are going to grow. It's incumbent upon us to do our best to be as efficient with that resource as possible, to be able to deal with our priorities effectively, uh, to be able to look to reduce the tax burden when we can, recent, you know, the senior tax credits, for example, uh, things like that. But it's not really tenable either to just say, well, let's just go to the constant uh, yield. Um, 
that would be not unlike, for example, the decision that was made that led to six consecutive years of maintenance of effort with the school. You can say that the school system in Frederick County was receiving the same amount of money every year, and it was, uh, per, per pupil, um, but that was really uh, a situation where every year the stress on the system became greater because costs go up, and it led to cuts, harder decisions, larger class size, pushing back some uh, facilities development projects, other things like that. So we need to be responsible to taxpayers and to tax dollars be as efficient and effective as possible. And I try to make the point to people that, you know, we hear discussions about $135 here or, or $10,000 there or even $135,000 somewhere else, and yet we don't have the adequate discussions that we have about the things that cost the absolute most in our community and offer the best opportunity to reduce those costs and either return money to the taxpayers or invest that money in other important things for the benefit of the quality of life in our community. And that relates to again, smart growth and the fact that, you know, the basic infrastructure that supports our community is the most important, expensive thing, one of the most expensive things that we provide that we have an option about. And when we grow in responsible ways, that's much more efficiently. You're utilizing existing infrastructure. You're utilizing new infrastructure more densely. You're putting much fewer resources per person, for residents, per household, per business uh, to support that. Uh, And uh, you create opportunities with uh, those resources that wouldn't have been available. When you pursue, pursue sprawl, for example, that costs us all. Um, and we see things like the $180 million tax increment financing deal that went to Jefferson Technology Park to help stimulate you know, 900 residential units in an area where it didn't make any sense. It wasn't redevelopment. It wasn't affordable housing. It didn't need to happen there. That's money that's not going to be coming into the county tax uh, rolls for 20 years um, that was completely unnecessary. Those are the most important questions to have. Uh, But there's other things, too. The county being responsible with its budget and being one of very few in the country that has a AAA bond rating from all three of the rating agencies saves the county incredible amounts of money and interest that we can then get to put back into the system or forward projects that might have had to wait and other things. So it's a much more complicated uh, picture than a lot of people think. Do you feel like that the county council has enough involvement in in the budgeting process, maybe not just in regards to the tax rate, but just involved in the budgeting process as a whole? And if you were on the on the council, how would you propose more involvement or or more um, com- I, maybe communication might be the right word with the county executive in, in developing the budget? Well, I mean, it's about communication, but it has to be about formal communication. So you can look at the situation two ways. What is necessary? What is required? What is built into the system? And what is true right now because the county executive approaches it in a certain way or because the council members approach it in a certain way? So if right now, for example, County Executive Jan Gardner is very inclusive and asks all of the county council members for their input and meets with them early and they have a lot of discussions, that's a good thing. But it's also not required. Um, And Uh, So, you know, who's the next county executive or the one after that? Who's on the next council or the one after that? And how do they work to do that? So I think when the charter was written, it was based on a uh, strong um, county executive model. A lot of people don't appreciate that that's a choice that we made, that it could be done a lot of different ways and that it is done a lot of different ways in different counties, different municipalities, things like that. Um, And the, the county executive essentially 
writes the budget, the county council has only the opportunity to reduce individual line items. They can't increase anything. They can't rearrange money or priorities or anything like that, except through some negotiation that might exist if there's a sufficient majority to say, we're not going to approve this budget if, you know, we don't. That's not the kind of environment within which you want to be uh, building the budget or negotiating with the county executive. So I would like to see a change in the charter that would enhance the county's council's uh, ability to play a bit more of a role in those budget priorities. Um, and, you know, the timing is right with the next council, having had a, a full council term now, uh, you know, looking at uh, uh, the process of uh, evaluating potential improvements to the charter and charter amendments, which you would have to have the support of a majority of the council and a vote of the citizens of Frederick County. So they got to be things about which there's significant agreement. But I think there's a number of changes we can make as we learn from this experience that would make it better. Mm -hmm. um, and back to kind of like the development um, issues, uh, affordable housing. Um, mm -hmm. Do you believe the county has an, a shortage of affordable housing? And if so, what would you do to create more affordable places to live? Well, I think affordable housing is a huge issue in the county. It's a problem in almost every growing, desirable, uh, you know, well-off community in the country, and it's getting worse in most places. We have, uh, you know, county efforts, nonprofit efforts, private efforts to try to deal with this problem. They are laudable, uh, whether it's the Interfaith Housing Alliance or some of the other groups, but they are woefully inadequate to meet the overall need that we have. So even though they do good work, we keep falling farther behind. It's kind of like bailing out a boat that's got a bigger hole. And and that's not going to change if we keep doing things the way we do. There are a lot of tools that we have that we either don't use or don't use fully or well to support more affordable housing. We're not Part of it is adhering to smart growth principles and, again, trying to build a greater mix of housing rented and owned uh, in our existing communities and around our existing communities where there's uh, adequate infrastructure, where it can be supported by, you know, the fact that it's walkable or has uh, economically sound um, transit available, you know, to, with good schools and, and parks. Um, but we are not building the missing middle. The missing middle is a term... Uh, in the planning universe that relates to, you know, smaller homes, uh, three, five, six unit uh, apartments or condos, uh, things like that, that that provide housing opportunities for people who are fresh out of college, young families with one kid, uh, a senior whose spouse has died and doesn't need the full house anymore. So there are things we can do like that. There's also things like the recent uh, accessory dwelling unit legislation in the county, which should be done, I think, in the city as well, that provides an opportunity for people to make additional income by building a small unit uh, on their property that can provide adequate housing for a young person, a young family, uh, you know, a single college graduate who's moved back or a senior or maybe a relative. Um, there are things we can do with things like the transfer of development rights. There are opportunities in this county for some major uh, a substantial redevelopment uh, planning that could be stimulated and in creating good incentives while also preserving agricultural land by utilizing the transfer of development rights from agricultural land where farmers who live in areas that are not going to be rezoned or are not planning to be rezoned could still get value for the development rights that they do have that could then be utilized to increase uh, densities or provide additional support for uh, development in some of these targeted areas for 
for redevelopment. The 355-85 corridor, for example, uh, with two interstate highways, Mark Station, close to downtown Frederick on the Washington and Baltimore side of the city is a perfect example of where uh, there's a real opportunity there. And I've been talking about that one for about 12 years. <laughs> you you mentioned the ADU legislation, and one of the it, that legislation, it's two bills, it does several different things, but one of the big things is it gets rid of uh, in, the need to pay impact fees. Right, I supported that. And developers, we hear from time to time, feel like they are targeted with the number of fees that they have to pay. Do you sure. do you feel like developers have to pay too many fees as it is and that drives up the housing costs or is there something else that's driving up well, those costs? Well, I mean you can say the developers are paying it or you can say that it's driving up the cost of housing and that the homeowners are paying it right. which is and then the market has to bear and then it has to be competitive relative to other markets and I mean it again it's complicated but um there are two ways to look at it. In the short run, uh, if you live here and you go to a school, your children go to school, it's not overcrowded, and you commute on a road where traffic is getting worse, and there are other public resources, parks and pro programs that you utilize, and new people move into the community and put a stress on that and require new facilities and new programs and new services, which have a cost. You know, people who live here or have lived here for 10 years or for generations are, you know, it's understandable when they say, well, why should we be bearing the cost of that new school, you know, in uh, Urbana or that new road uh, in, in Green Valley or something like that? And so the, the whole idea was to put the burden of responsibility for covering those necessary costs on the people who are generating the need to build those facilities or to expand those roads. And on its face, that makes sense. On the other hand, I don't think it's an adequate approach in the long run, and I would like us to be able to entertain, and I do think it does drive up the cost of housing, and, I, and there are reasons why you can't offer certain kind of exceptions for, say, if there's already existing infrastructure or if it's redevelopment or infill to exempt people from those impact fees given the rational nexus and the requirements of the law. But I think if we were to look and say, in the long run, what is a better way to do this? How can we have a, an overall revenue model and cost model for building and maintaining our infrastructure and providing services with the right mix of businesses and residential taxes, the right mix of residential units and types of housing, uh, so that that wasn't necessary. <laughs> so that instead of just constantly ratcheting up the cost of these fees, uh, we find a better, different uh, model to avoid doing that. You can't get there by just saying, let's cut the fees. Because that's just going to spread the cost onto everybody without changing the model you're using, which is what generates the level of cost. But if you're pursuing smart growth principles, you're reducing the cost of providing infrastructure, of maintaining infrastructure, which is a far bigger cost than a lot of people tend uh, to, to appreciate. But maintaining and building you know, roads and bridges and schools and stormwater management and you know, everything else that goes with it. So... Um, Short term, it, it, it does have some negative effects. I do understand their concerns. I am very open to looking at long-term ways to move to a different model, but it's not something you can just throw out tomorrow because it, it has to be done as part of a bigger plan. You, you mentioned smart growth a lot, and, and a big part of smart growth that, that you have said at past forums as sustainable, walking communities, walkable communities, sustainable initiatives. 
do you feel like that the county has done enough to become a more sustainable, more environmentally friendly county? And if not, what would you propose? What do you feel like the county, where can the county improve? What work can be done? I think the county has done a lot and not enough. Uh, When I was a county commissioner, uh, we did a lot. We implemented single stream recycling. We tried to focus uh, growth where it made the most sense and could utilize existing infrastructure, reduce sprawl into our farm and forest land, the fragmentation of our rural economies and and things like that. Uh, We uh, worked to preserve uh, water quality with uh, stream buffers and we did the groundwater recharge protection uh, areas. Uh, we improved the forest resource ordinance. Some of those things are still in place. Some of them were removed by the Blaine Young board, and some of those have been partially reinstituted by the current council. Um, we created the Sustainability Commission, the Sustainability Office. Um, we did a great deal to reduce county uh, consumption uh, there are of energy in our fleet, in our buildings, through efficiency, and uh, we've worked to provide support for others uh, to do that. But we have an opportunity to do much more in the way of solid waste management, uh, to get at you know commercial composting, get a higher participation penetration for the curbside recycling, making inroads into multifamily units and and to business uh, recycling. Um, I'd like to see our park system include a component that addressed, you know, natural areas, not just highly developed recreational areas. I was on the Park and Rec Commission for eight years. I appreciate our park system. I know how to major and difficult commitment it is to develop these parks and have them in the right places and available to people in numbers that mean that fields are available for kids to practice and everything else. And we are a little bit behind, even though we've done a good job. Um, but there's more uh, we can do uh, with that. Um, I think, you know, we're living in a world with a changing climate, and there are a lot of issues related to that. And the two things I would say about that are, one is that we need to do what we can to reduce our contribution to that problem. We also need to do what we can to recognize the changes that it's going to bring to uh, agriculture, to stormwater management, and other things like that and prepare so that we are resilient in the face of those changes and they have fewer negative uh, effects on us. The good news is almost everything that we would be recommended to do to meet some of those goals would be smart to do even in a world without climate change. If we're exporting fewer dollars for energy in our community, that money gets recycled through our economy and supports other things. If we're more efficient with waste and reducing those costs and preserving resources, that has local environmental benefits, not just global climate change benefits. So uh, I think we've made some really good strides, and I only mentioned a few, and I think there's a lot more we can do that's smart and that benefits all of us. Okay. Any more? Um, I think that was pretty much what I had. Well, okay. <laughs> we, we really appreciate you coming in. Uh, again, for voters, the uh, early voting begins October 25th. The election is November 6th. Um, Kai, really, really appreciate your time. Thanks for, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you for having me.